Hey everyone, welcome to Comedy History 101. This is Harmon. Believe it or not, we actually have a brand spanking new episode today. Yes, we interview the great and legendary Rick Overton, who has a brand new comedy special out called Rick Overton's Setlist. Rick, as you know, has an IMDB page the size of a small phone book. Rick has been in everything from Beverly Hills Cop to he played Matt Damon's boss in the Steven Soderbergh movie, The Informant. Most recently, he was on the Showtime series, I'm Dying Up Here, which is loosely based on the history of the comedy store. So we have a lot to dive into. But before we jump into the episode, a few things to plug on Thursday, July 22nd, 7 p.m. at the Red Room in the Lower East Side, I'll be producing my show, Tale, NYC's Finest Storytelling. So, if you're in the Lower East Side, come pop on down for that. Also, in August, I'll be at the Edinburgh Festival. So, come on out if you are in Scotland and see my new solo show, Also, take some time to like, subscribe, and comment on Comedy History 101, wherever you get your podcast, or on our site, ComedyHistory101.com. And now, without further ado... You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. Good thing about doing comedy in Russia, you have captured the audience. You're stupid. Everybody's Comedy History 101. Great. Should, should we just jump in? Do you want to just jump in? Let's just dive into it. Let's talk comedy. Let's talk comedy. So um, you, you might not remember, we met like like years ago. I had a show called Jokey Okey with Paul Provenza and Barbara Roman. I remember yeah. Jokey Okey. Yeah, man. I remember the Jokey Okey. <laughs> yeah, and you, you, were, you were a judge up at the esteemed uh, Purple Onion, legendary Purple Onion Club in uh, San Francisco. So first, thanks for that. Oh, it was, it, was, uh, it was a trip, you know. I was thinking, where's our culture headed next? Ah, of course. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it like, was perfect. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it was almost maybe a show ahead of its time because it's essentially what people are doing now on, say, Instagram or YouTube, where they're just immediately catapulting themselves into sort of uh, stardom. And that, and this stardom was like, you know, doing comedy routines a la karaoke style. Right. And, uh, and, and the, what I was saying was the regular club version of the boom wasn't as strong as it used to be. And so other ways of doing it were starting to pop up, like jokey okey and things like that. Comedy was in a position to have to start reinventing itself to stay relevant to an audience that might be staying home now to watch more cable or, you know, when comedy started to become more available at home, it started to have to change. How are you going to get them to come back out again? Yeah. And again, we've seen that change happen, you know, over the last year where, okay, um, comedy is not accessible in clubs. So suddenly the big boom in like live streaming, which, you know, people now are, are are probably glad to go back and perform in clubs as well as like audience members, but there are going to be people sticking around in that sort of medium. So, you know, once again, you know, reinventing itself. Right. And, and who knows what face 
it'll wear tomorrow because we we have not invented that yet. It'll it'll always be a oh oh ha ha kind of thing, you know. In a lot of Zoom, I've turned into a Zoombie. Doing the Zomedy. I was doing Zomedy. That's right. I was a Zoombie <laughs> doing Zomedy. <laughs> yeah, we all turned into Zoomedians. <laughs> right, Zoomedians. Zoomedians doing hours of uh, sit down on the sofa comedy and and remembering you're funny when you can't hear the laugh over the yeah. speaker system, the way the little Hollywood squares are set up on the screen to watch back <laughs> it, it, it's, it's overwhelming the uh the microphone so it goes into noise cancel yeah and there's always there was always like a little delay too so when you were on a show with other people it would you'd think you got no reaction but they're just like getting it like a second later as as you stare into your webcam with the cold dead look of a grizzly bear's eye <laughs> yeah right. and yeah. then getting back to a club and then people really looking you in the face again and they oh yes, yeah this other thing i did oh yeah the not camera version of this right i don't have to just do this like an acting performance now i do have to interact now <laughs> when we're you know when we're looking back on this time and telling others about it uh we're going to be talking about all the goofy highs and lows and twists and turns and stuff we had to contort ourselves into and then we'll have our vaudeville on the road stories. Yeah, and there'll be like terminology from the, the Zoom era. That that terminology will stick around now in the live clubs. Like, you know, are you going to do Zomedy? And it's like, where did that term come from? And it's like, oh, well, back in 2021, all, all comedy stopped. And they had, they had this software that, that long faded away years ago called Zoom. And, and that's where that term comes from. That's where that expression came from. You didn't do this live oh my god how did you do it oh zoom was that like friendster (laughs) 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 it's uh it's like uh unfriendster meets uh myspace but you know what the guys who figured out early how to make myspace work for their comedy acts kind of like one they won they were the winners. Yeah. Um, what's his name? Dane Cook was the king of MySpace. He had more MySpace friends than anyone. And so did Dan Hope was right there too. Doug mm-hmm. Stanhope has made a whole thing out of you do a private party for him and they'll fund it, right? And uh, they'll bring him out on a flight and it's like he makes his own, he creates a gig without the system giving him permission or saying when yes and when no. He just said, fuck that. I'm just going to go out and get my own. I'm going to make my own gig. Yep. You know, it's just the people that jump on it early. Yeah. But did you did you have this sensation with uh, Zoom comedy? Did you get like the first show I set up on Zoom? We got Zoom bombed. Zoom bomb is like people. OK, so people find out the password to your Zoom meeting and they crash it. And usually they end up either screaming racism or pinning pornography <laughs> into your Zoom oh, meeting. <laughs> it felt like a physical man. So this was like in April, you know, after like the club shut down in March. So it felt like a physical manifestation of the pan of COVID. <laughs> it's just like, it came out of every corner and there was like dozens of them that just Zoom bombed our comedy show to the point where like all we had to do was just shut it down. That's There was nothing... <laughs> to deal with it you're talking these are like uh junior high kids with with gadgets giggling high-fiving mischief right they don't they don't know what they're <laughs> breaking or 
destroying or anything. That's just, it's hilarious. Just a, it's, you know, and when they don't have any other power in their lives and then you give them this and they go, this is my one power and I don't have yeah. any power anywhere else. I'm, I'm sorry. There's going to be collateral damage. Yeah. I mean, we were just a comedy show, but they were like zoom bombing, like church meetings and stuff <laughs> and just like classroom zoom stuff. So that's how you know it. <laughs> These are students doing this crap here. Cause they're, they're, this is revenge on a school kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not really revenge on comedy, like people that hate comedy, you know, these are just, yeah. And and it works because we go, what the fuck is going on here? (laughs) There's, I've, I've been heckled in my life, but there's nothing like pinning pornography over my comedy set in a live club (laughs) while, while screaming racism. I never even heard of such a thing, but um, I hope it's not a regular practice, but you know, zoom is sort of, going uh it's going into the corporate structure right now and saying it is trying to hold its own as they wonder what they're going to tell their shareholders about tomorrow when people aren't using it for the same things because now they're going out live again more as stuff opens up now if they lock it down again it could all those stocks go right back up again but i wonder what what interesting position to be in to be a possessor of a sort of interim emergency technology that had prime relevance in the peak of that emergency and may have questionable relevance subsequent to it you know i i know it's like the making of a evil sci-fi movie where where the head of zoom plots to infest another pandemic so his, his stocks will go up <laughs> i would call that a dystopian future movie yeah yeah it's uh douchetopia So speaking of like changing the rules, um, your new special, your new set list special, I'll, I'll just say it, is changing some rules. The rules of, you know, what we see in an hour-long stand-up special. Right. Oh, thank you. Did you notice how I segued into that? I tried to segue into it earlier. And well, again, we got off on a, a tangent a, that was a, improv. A, a, with, a, a we did an tangent. improv. <laughs> yeah, here, 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 here. And I, I feel honored doing improv with one of the greats, such as yourself, who improvised a whole, you know, hour stand-up. So I, I guess, you know, I know what it's about because I was actually there in Edinburgh the first year of Setlist. Maybe, you know, just being the the tone of my um, podcast is comedy history. Maybe give us like a little history of the origin of uh, Setlist. Troy Conrad was comedy Jesus for a while. So will you guys want to get on your, your YouTubes there and have a look at comedy Jesus. He was doing that routine and shaking people up on a real Sasha Baron Cohen level, you know, as just really splendid stuff. And he's this brilliant. Now he's a brilliant photographer as well. And you can see a lot of his, uh, work photographing comedians, but he was the creator of a game called set list. And this game is where they put you on stage. You're not allowed really to do your set acts. You can't do it, but they have a screen behind you. And instead they start projecting weird, not regular. It's not airline food or dating or pets or any of that. It's, you know, instead of uh, accounting, it would be a clowning. And then you do liars club and just turn around and act like this has just always been part of your act and just keep talking 
Uh, and uh, while your brain is going a trillion miles a second trying to find what words go where. But it really, it, it isn't your brain at a certain point. It's your gut. Your gut will save you every time. It'll have to scream through your brain to get the words out of the library. But your gut put the sentence together. What, what do you mean? What do you mean by the, your, your gut? You know, certain schools of thought, they would say, then we're talking about your right brain rather than your left brain. The left brain serves more as a device of memory. It remembers what your gut did in an act of inspiration a moment before, but it records it and in the process forgets that it's recording it, thinks it came up with it and takes credit for it. So that's the human there's your human brain. But if you learn to get around that by just understanding that part and gently letting the other part do what it does, that do exercises that force the right brain to save you. Study improv. I'd say even if you're not going to be an improv comic, study improv, because at some point you are improvising, you are writing a new joke, and you are either plagiarizing A or B. You're improvising. There's no C. And then it's between A and B. There's the all the variations in the shades of gray with Shakespeare's 12 premises or whatever you want to call it. So there are just so many things to be done. And it's your job to mark your territory as, as you doing it. So I think the more improv you do, the more you figure out what your voice is, not your teachers, not your heroes, but how you fit in. And, oh, look how you got to laugh. It didn't have to do with the other person anymore. You can do this. You can do it on your own terms. And you'll never find out until you've done it, gotten it wrong, hung out with the people to help you through. Let your ego take the hit. It's so infinitely worth it. There's so little downside, and it's all upside. Even if you're yes, just using it in the office, there's no place where improv doesn't pay off. For confidence, the confidence in your words, your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, so many comedians uh, like kind of feared doing the set list, which is, you know, again we rely on just honing something from, you know, X amount of sets. What, what, what is like the game theory? I'm, I'm like big into game theory. What is the game theory used to win set list or winning, meaning winning the audience? It's about, it's about being you being yourself, being natural. And I am sort of this blown up version of me. But if you talk with me long enough, you go, oh, that guy is kind of this other guy. He's just kind of hamming it up a little bit on top of it. I'm a hammed up version of me. But those, those are the kinds of thoughts I would just spout off anyway. You know yourself well enough. You know you can portray this person who is a, uh, a regular guy or whatever you're going to be. Some people are very, I'm this weird character. They can do it that way too. But then you you got you got to stay that guy the whole time. Yeah. You can't go anywhere else. You got to you know why why I recommend a little bit of neutral you is so that in set list terms you can can I go elbow this way and elbow that way, and then, and everyone's not going oh you're breaking character. And I love getting myself in trouble with this game. I love digging a ditch that's really hard to get out of. I super set it up in a way that oh god what did I do. <laughs> What's like an example of that? You know, when I just say the, if you look, there's a YouTube of me doing a show for you folks just want a sample of it. There's YouTube of me at uh, uh, Cobbs in San Francisco and I'm doing a set list. And I go, I, I believe all these conspiracy theories are true. I don't even think I'm even, I'm in San Francisco. I think I'm in a warehouse watching IMAX somewhere in the Valley and and then I that's my setup, right? I haven't looked at the screen yet, right? 
And I turn around and go, and I know this is true because, oh, and I see the word, and it's not optimist, it's coctimist, C-O-C-K-T-I-M-I-S-T. And I go, I go, because I don't think with my brain. So what I'm, what I'm trying to tell you is you, if you're playing the game, and I hope everyone, you, got, you comics out there, you get to play this game. It's so good for you. And if you go with the, the basic premise of staying open to just letting your subconscious talk, sometimes I can make that first part a joke, but sometimes there isn't a first joke there. The setup for the first joke comes with the second, third thing you say. You just have to go through this process to get there. It isn't always instant see, joke, see, joke. Also, that natural you that you find in between in the game, you get to have more leeway if you bought yourself that territory by just speaking as yourself first. Guys, trust me. If you do it this way, it opens it up for you. You don't narrow it down. It's like a funnel. If you just mm -hmm. do a little bit about it in the beginning, it fans open that way as you get to play it. If you do way too much, it goes narrow. And I do that to myself sometimes. I will totally screw myself sometimes. I've been way too much about the setup. And, oh, God, I got a belly crawl out of this one. <laughs> You'll see it in the special. But I think that's part of the fun is, oh, look at the shit he threw himself into. And have you, have you cultivated material from doing set lists and used it in your club act, like your just regular stand-up? Sometimes it does happen. It doesn't happen all the time. And if you're really in that zone, you know, the, the creative zone, you're not really remembering everything. You're not paying that level of attention. It's like, watch, it's like watching yourself drive a movie of yourself driving on the PCH while you're driving on the PCH. You can't do it unless you're actually there driving. You can't watch as a participant. You have to be the star of that movie, not just a, an audience member. And just, just in general, just being the theme of our podcast is comedy history. If we could dwell back, what, what is the, the Rick Overton comedy origin story? Like where, where, where did you grow up or where did you start performing comedy? My dad was a jazz musician. My dad loved improv. Just to back up, your dad played with... Thelonious Monk. Thelonious Monk, but also the, the jazz loft in New York City. Well, that was my dad's loft. Like, yeah, where like Salvador Dali hung out. Uh-huh, that's right. Uh, Dali would hang out, and so would you know Monk and uh, Miles and all these guys come by. I'd come out to visit, and uh, these guys would all be hanging out. I'm supposed to be sleeping in the other room in the back, but I'm not sleeping i'm listening and it's there's too much music and noise and laughter and adults talking about heavy topics and fierce intellectual debates going on it was some lively stuff you know and there was comedy and my dad loved jonathan winters he would mm -hmm. everybody'd shut up to listen to a jonathan record i was just thinking about this my father's world was one where you have to be cool mm -hmm. and Cool isn't always the best friend of funny. Cool is everything you don't show, whereas so much of funny lives in the world of vulnerability, right? Uh, he, I think, had a secret dream to be a second him, to be a second self, one that mm -hmm. did have permission to free up and do this crazy, goofy, Dick Van Dyke, you name it kind of stuff. So I think in a way, he was somehow subconsciously passing some of that down to me by taking me and playing those records for me 
And I didn't always know what all these laughs were about, but I sure knew I wanted to get one of them like my dad was laughing. And there was enough of it that was sounding silly and goofy that I could sort of have some fun with it. But it's really, it clicked in watching a Sullivan, you know, or a Jack Parr or a Johnny later doing the improv and seeing the freedom he had. I think it's really important. You don't just listen. Guys out there, really watch watch whatever footage you can of Jonathan Winters. You'll see he's kind of the granddaddy of so much of how we improvise anywhere today. Yeah, but, you know, you mentioned Thelonious Monk and Miles and, you know, all the people of the Jazz Loft where, you know, a huge part of jazz is the improv. Example is Coltrane could do My Favorite Things. He can go off and take it outer space, but then he knows he can go back to the chorus at the end. How much do you think that influenced your comedy, which is heavy on the improv? It's just basically kind of a word comedy version of that. Yes, I think think the actual musical ability jumped over me and landed on my brother Steve Overton. And if you guys get a chance to get hip to his channel, SX Overton on YouTube. These are all original pieces and he composes, writes, produces, and plays every single instrument and uh, sings, does his own harmonies. He's like, so you know Todd Rundgren, the way he kind of mixes his own yeah. thing? Steve does a, does a Rundgren thing. It's really good stuff. And so that's his gift. And so I kind of borrowed a tiny bit of timing and I'm using it a different way. And uh, my dad loved Peter Sellers, and he loved Jonathan Winters and Newhart. Godfrey Cambridge was huge for my father. Major, major comedy force. Wonderful. And uh, I, I got an interesting start in, in comedy. And also my mom was a cordette. She was one of the lollipops, uh, Mr. Sandman gals yeah. singing. Now, she, she did a little bit of recording, but the major part of the recording was done when she uh, wasn't in the group yet. And... Then one of the gals got pregnant, and the gown wouldn't zip up on her, so Mom slipped into it and took took on the road. So that meant, like, it would go to car shows and county fairs and stuff like that where they would do ribbon cuttings and you name it, right? The the, the road stuff is the harder <laughs> than the yeah. recording stuff. I'd be out on the road, and it was the Ohio uh, State county fair i believe i don't know what year it was exactly but i had i was a little kid I, I forget mom told me that i was a little bit of a shit and that i <laughs> <laughs> i was starting to get i was starting a little too much mischief and one of the things i did is i went to the putting range and i just went whack and hit that ball as hard as i could and it landed in the pool and i i'm going down to the pool to get it. And this guy is older fellow who's just burnt to a crisp and he's bald headed. So at first I didn't recognize him because he wasn't wearing a toupee and sploosh. He went in, he came back up holding the ball, looks me in the face. He goes, young man, do you have a pen? And I went, George Burns. It's George Burns. And I was like <laughs> clapping my hands and jumping up and down. And then, I got a, I did a joke, and I got a laugh out of him. Do, do you remember the joke? Yeah. I said, boy, George really burns, because he was crispy, <laughs> right? And, it, and he did one of those senior comedian, like a laugh, but at the, oh, ho, 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 and he pointed at me like this one over here, which, you know, it, that's like, a, that's a giant thing to get. I was, I guess, set on my head. 
over Don. I, I knew when I was a little kid I was going to be something doing something like this. I kind of knew early. Why do you think you took the direction of comedy over uh, music? Intimidation factor, and I didn't think I had the goods. There's a couple of YouTubes of me playing harmonica. And yeah, there's better harmonica players by light years than me. Robert Klein, Charlie Fleischer, you know, I just do my little thing. Did you grow up like Forest Hills, Queens? You're, you're from like New York area, right? Yeah, uh, that was part of it. We grew up, I grew up uh, on 108th Street, Forest Hills. Home of the Ramones as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The Ramones are out of there. And uh, the little red school building, PS196. But Diz and Thelonious both coaxed my folks into thinking about moving near them in Englewood, New Jersey. So that's what they did. Oh, wow. Wow. Just in general, like I went through a period where I was just reading jazz biographies and, you know, I love the story of Thelonious Monk. What is just as a jazz nerd as well, what is like your recollection of reading Thelonious Monk? It was cool. You know, I, I, I didn't always know what to say. I would try to yeah. laugh on occasion, you know, wow. It's, you know, it's these memories are coming back to me. They're kind of hitting me in the heart. It's nice. Anyway. So mom and I would be, you know, just watching them dad and, and Thelonious or dad and Diz talking in kind of jazz hip code didn't know all the, i didn't know all the words mom knew all the words she wasn't playing up to it but they, they, they thought especially around the kid they better start talking in code but I, was, I started putting it together you know and uh and dizzy would destroy me yeah. by putting his fingers over his his mouth and then blowing out his cheeks like an airbag and I would just start screaming on the floor and kicking my <laughs> legs and tears down my face. And the other thing he would do is get the, the, the trumpet out and go, bop it up, bop it up, salt peanuts, salt peanuts, oh, yeah. salt peanuts. That just killed me. I don't know. It just always made me laugh. And he'd chase me around with the trumpet and make me feel like how I laughed. You know, and dad, I could get everybody laughing with my laughter. This is like one of the earliest things I found out about different things that made adults laugh. Because it's not like making your your friends laugh with a duty joke or something like that, you know? Yeah, no, there's no money here. <laughs> at least, at least not back then. <laughs> but uh, now, it, I look back on those first. Do you remember the first adults that thought you were funny? Give me one of your adult gave you the laugh and the nod stories and go told give it i remember my first laugh which was at summer camp and because uh, i was like one of those shy introverted kids but then i was in a skit it's a formative year of yours you're in the formative yeah. years right yeah 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 totally i'm trying to think of like first adult laugh it's kind of hard you know but i just remember like the first laugh in front of like a group of people yeah yeah it sticks with you yeah. permanent memory i'm coming back to this town So when, when did you make the transition into like hitting the clubs and I assume was it out in New York? I was in a comedy team with T-O-N-N, Ton, for, short for Anthony. It's another way to say Tony. It's Ton, Ton Pastor. And mm -hmm. he, was, uh, he went to Dwight Morrow High School and I went to Dwight Morrow High School. Uh, we went to school that year with Travolta. John Travolta was in our class. Oh, wow. Out in Forest Hills? Uh, but that, by, oh, by senior year, he was gone. 
He was mm-hmm. out by senior year. Uh, busy doing uh, Greece. He didn't even have time for high school. So Khan and I would do assemblies. We started in our sophomore year doing sketches. And uh, we would do assemblies, get a few laughs. But our, our last couple of shows, we got like pretty solid big laughs. Very, we were getting a little more sophisticated with our sound effects and our two characters we played and all that stuff. And the timing. We were starting to work on real timing. And uh, watching the TV people who had the timing. Watching the Carol Burnett show. Yeah. So we would do our timing thing. And we thought maybe there'd be a future in this. But his world was one that was assured guaranteed lots of money he lives in that world now and he's still doing great in in the Mm -hmm. world where he went business wise and so his dad said you're going down here buddy and so he went down there and it it happened to be true so he he's still a very funny guy but we're not you know we're not doing comedy together for many decades and so i met another guy named roger sullivan and i was in a team with him for five years the more, you know, the more we became a thing, the more we became a gig, and the more it became about money, that's what started messing everything up. Because when you're artists, everyone is brilliant. You were magnificent. No, you were more so. Uh, and then they pay you one time for the span of whatever you're doing up there. They don't pay you twice for that just because there's two of you. That's not their, that's not their responsibility. You have to figure that out on the drive home. And so, of course, it automatically becomes about whose premise is more important than whose punchline. Yeah. You know, whose gasoline, who paid for the gas, well, who owns the car as you zoom down that <laughs> way too long road to the point where you can get out. That kind of destroyed things a little bit. It's funny how it, it business commerce has a way of strangling art, even inadvertently. So... I was nervous in 1978, and I didn't know if I could go out on my own, but everyone was very cool with me over at the Improv and Catch a Rising Star, and they put me up. So I I got to find my own way through improv. It was mostly through improv because that's all you're doing. That's all you're doing when you're writing. (laughs) You're improvising. Just maybe we think of it as, hi, we're mixed nuts, and we're not good at improv, and here, give us a suggestion. (laughs) I don't want to use that as the model there's lots of genius came out of improv there's so many levels and layers of it and so i'm an improvangelist you know i'm just going to be pushing this for everyone i just think there's no downside and then how long did it take you just you think in general just to get your comedy voice you know we all start out and we're all you know when we start out we're trying to emulate the people we look up to in comedy how long do you think it took you to you know find your unique voice Oh, geez. They say it takes 10 years. And they're not, that's not very specific. So people go, I did my 10 years. How come I don't know? I don't feel that sensation. I think to, to make your act informed, your act is your opinions made funny. But they really are your opinions. Because you can see when someone really believes what he's saying about his household situation as opposed to, I just heard this joke and I love it. So Mm -hmm. I think your connection to the truth and knowing your voice is what that 10 years is about. It's really knowing what your opinions are. Then your act just reflects that. They say, write what you know. And when people write what they don't know, that also shows. It's knowing how you feel. And and just to like segue here, um, enjoyed seeing you on uh, uh, the Showtime. I'm dying up here. Um, We've done many episodes on, you know, history of, 
the comedy store. Was it, it was based on a book about the comedy store, wasn't it? Loosely, loosely yeah. based on the book for, you know, reasons of we have any- to make a show, a, a show, a, a movie, uh, or a, a, especially a series based on a book has to do a lot of extrapolation off of just what the book offered because that's not going to be enough for a series. you got to make more. Mm-hmm. So you have to base it on these things and bend it a little, twist it here, bend it there, work with who you got as the cast. Uh, this is the real-life knocking part that when you got to make one thing into another thing. And so I yeah. thought they did a great job. It was a kind of grim subject matter at times, but it's real life. It was a drama showing the underbelly of a comedy show. People were saying, why didn't I see more jokes? And I think that's you've got other things for that. This was a really interesting exploration into the other side of a comedian's existence. And having come up through that system, I can say it's, it resonates with me, you know. Just in general, what was your what's your comedy history with the comedy store, like coming up through the comedy store, or just or just you know performing there in general. I have done lots of sets there, but I wasn't really ever originally a, a comedy store guy. I'm great friends with everybody there, and great friends with all the comics there. But uh, I didn't. My roots weren't there. My origin isn't there. I'm from the New York Improv and Catch, and then I played Hollywood Improv because one improv to the next, and they were being good to me out there. And Bud brought me out for evening at the Improv. And so, yes, there was a little bit of a Berlin Wall up at that time. And uh, I stayed more on the improv side. But I think that's down, and I go to visit sometimes and see who's doing what, you know, watch a a roast battle or whatever. Yeah, uh, I don't think those rules still stand now. It's not the same place it used to be. It was very specific at one time, and you were a traitor if you were found out to have performed somewhere else, who was good to you? We were good to you. What are you doing? You know. Yeah. So, and then you mentioned like sort of the downside of comedy as portrayed on, you know, the TV series. What really kind of resonated with you on, on those sort of <laughs> moments that they portrayed that the public doesn't see? Look at Judy Gold's performance when she's talking about being a comedian back then, a comedian mm-hmm. in the early 1970s. It was such a boys' club. Like, you think it's a boys' club now. Look at her performance talking about how tough it was coming up and through all that. And see if you don't get emotionally moved. Judy Gold is a great actor. Kathy Ladman, great actor. A lot of comedians. Uh, and Brad Garrett, unbelievable. They all got, uh, like, emotions out of me. And it wasn't just laughter. This is good work. Strong. This was the show that showed all these comedians. We got these other chops, you know. We can do this. Andy Santino does this. Yeah, yeah. Al Madrigal Sam, from San Francisco. Yeah, right. And writing on the show, creating a lot of his own stuff. He's a, he could, we could do all that. He could show run. He could direct. It's not just, oh, it's just the comedian. Any more than you could say that about Steve Martin, right? Or other yeah, comics I mean, who've gone on to do fantastic things. Comic was one of the steps along the way. And that's one of those interesting steps you can always step back onto. Yeah, and just that time, I again, I um, I deep into like that history of that pre comedy strike era where suddenly just Freddie Prince makes it onto the Tonight Show, and then it became a place where just lives were just changed like overnight. Oh yeah, getting yeah, getting uh, Chico and the Man overnight, yeah. You're waiting for that Johnny break to bust open like a champagne bottle in one split second. Yeah, there's just one Johnny, and you get on Johnny, and you get to sit on the couch 
signaled over, and then your your whole life has changed. Yeah, yeah. That was back when there was no competition. There were no alternatives. Just one gatekeeper. At least in part had to do with there wasn't HBO, there wasn't Comedy Central, there wasn't at-home access to it. You could watch a Merv, but you had to wait. You had to time it. You could watch a Mike Douglas when it was scheduled. A steady, ready other supply of comedy was coming off of uh, Dick Cavett. Yeah, there's like great clips of it on uh, YouTube of uh, just he like interviewed everyone from Gracho, you know, to on up. I, I used I mean, to go just, watch okay. those tapings. Oh, wow. Who, who did you see? John Lennon. Okay, there you go. <laughs> I saw John Lennon a few times. I used to run into John Lennon all the time now. Where, in New York or LA, LA days? No, it was back in New York. It was when he was not popular because everyone was angry with him for letting uh, Yoko talk him into breaking up the Beatles, which is like this. It was way more complex. That's not the real story. That that was the myth going on the street. So he wasn't always getting the friendly smiles he was so accustomed to. But I always had mm-hmm. one for him. So he always had one back for me. And so I would run into him all the time and we'd give each other a nod. It was so weird, you know. There's one of my big old heroes just nodding to me. How how do you do? <laughs> yeah, and when uh, there's that whole era when he was part, I think, was it called The Vampires? With him and Mickey Dolenz and Harry Nilsson. And they would just be this sort of drunk, club in LA they're called something like the vampires and I know it's just like Mickey Dolan's of the monkeys was part of that but they they weren't popular they weren't popular they were getting thrown out of places and things Things like like that that. oh (laughs) they're getting the old Peter O'Toole and uh right okay always like like on wtf is when people talk about like their worst rogue gig hell gig experience do you do you have any like worst hell gig road gig kind of look story uh, you'll, you will probably immediately agree instantly mm-hmm. you will relate to the charity fundraiser that <laughs> is uh, you see right away you got your ironic oh yes my friend yeah. been there <laughs> way uh, too many times and what do you what, what do you follow <laughs> You follow tragic footage of the poor person's decline and then the rain-soaked funeral with umbrellas and tears. And now to lighten the mood, please welcome the styling, the comedy stylings of Rick Overton. Hey, everybody. Hey, how's everybody? Is everybody ready to partay tonight? (laughs) Oh, man. It's always the organizer with a thumbs up. You're doing great. And smiling oh. and nodding, giant teeth. Yeah, you're doing great. Like, you know you're not. And it's like, this is for them to go, do you hate me? That's what their face is saying. Did I just totally screw you? Do you hate me? But she's pretending, you're doing great. Oh, man. I heard one of those stories where it was like that. And then they had like a bagpipe player come out and play, you know, Danny Boy. Do a little amazing yeah. grace there, you know. Yeah. Uh, 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 no. <laughs> and conversely, what 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 set stands out the most, like performance wise? Anytime the chance to do a set list, all the set lists are so much fun because it's the first time I'm hearing it. So yes, I have a funny metric for what I measure a great set to be. It's such a joy. It's a separate thing, and the crowd can see that, and I think the crowd digs it, and they play along. You know what mm-hmm. I 
Yeah, they're, they're seeing the creation. They're seeing the, the test tubes mixing the chemicals. Right. Now, there's, I did a show with Robin. I did a set list with Robin, and that's probably one of those shows. Mm. So that's the show I'm, I'm building up to. And, and any show at the Throckmorton Theater. 142 yep. Throckmorton Theater in Mill Valley, ladies and gentlemen, you get a chance. Once they open up again, you get down there and give them the business because you're walking into a place where Charlie Chaplin performed vaudeville. Okay. Wow. It's a magical place, and the crowd is amazing. Guys, you want to tape your comedy special there. Lucy is fantastic, and the room is magical. The crowd is smart. They've seen good. They know what it is. I've seen Mort Saul there. Mort Saul, rocking great, still, still belting it, still rocking it. God bless you. Yeah, and Dana Carvey lives near there. He's always like down there, or at least when I was living in San Francisco. I used to play. I used to go on for hours with Robin there, hours and hours, endless. It was fun. Very lucky. Look, man, I'm not. I'm not saying this like in a way to be depressed because I just smile and go. Mm-mm. Jeez, I timed it pretty good. God sakes, I'm lucky. Holy shit, I'm lucky. Woo, baby. That's like, that's Indiana Jones luck, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and then just, you know, lastly, just any takeaway philosophy from, you know, such a diverse and, you know, career in comedy? You know, again, you're talking about lucky. You're talking about your a kid hanging around Thelonious Monk, you know, and then the coming up through the improv, you know, all that, all that put together. You know the answer to this one. What sure. have I been talking about this entire time? What do you need to study? Improv. Timing. That's it. <laughs> improv. Study improv. Invent how to do it. Study improv. Build your confidence around improv. Then it, 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 you can easily go back to memorization when needed. That's not the point. The point is to work on the atrophied side, to build it up so that it looks like both arms are the same. Make the other side strong. You've spent the whole, your whole life doing the other side. It's there. Don't worry about it. It won't fall apart if you abandon it for a little bit of time and start building the other side. They will get along just fine. Yeah, you know, it's just the jazz adage. It's like, and again, you know you can go back to the chorus of my favorite thing and take a time to go off into, you know, outer space. Cause you know, you can come back to that. And if you're seasoned, you'll know where to play and where to slide back into the song again. And the rest of the cats won't be looking at like, Oh man, don't do that to us, dude. You, <laughs> you got to warn us when you're going to pull it off in the middle like that, man. We don't, we don't do that shit here. You know, no solos here. This is not the part for <laughs> solos. So yeah. And that's, that's the practice part. That's what the study improv part is about working nice with others. And once you get that down, right. And it never stops. You're never, you're never not in class. Even when you're playing with the best people, that's especially when you're in class, Mm. you're able to, at a certain point, your cells run a recorder of the event. You don't have to worry about it. Don't worry about remembering anything. And look, I come off sometimes, I don't remember the whole set. And that's that's one of the marks uh, that you were present. Because yep. uh, someone probably will, will tell you later, oh, you did this thing about, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, that was that was good. And, uh, and another thing, later you do the bit, it didn't, it didn't work as good. It wasn't as strong as you thought in the moment. Because part of it was about it being in that moment. Yeah. Not the whole thing, but there was a part of it that was just, that was it. 
you know, it's a balancing act. Sometimes a bit can make it. Sometimes it does go on, and sometimes it was meant to stay right there. But it's not a loss because it wasn't about the bit. It's about the machine that makes the bit. As long as it keeps making new bits, you don't worry about the yester bit. That's the foundation of what this is. That's what that's mm-hmm. the that's one of the foundations of what I'm trying to communicate about the whole thing about why you study improv. Then when someone steals a joke, it's not the end of your universe. It's going to yeah. happen. If you make a great joke, it's it's gone. And lastly, I don't know if you remember one year I was doing a solo show in Edinburgh, and like most of my solo shows back then, there was like five people in the audience, and you were one of them. <laughs> and, and I look out in the audience, and you're like scribbling in a notebook and I go, Oh shit, I'm doing so bad that Rick Overton's bored <laughs> and, and journaling. No, you came up afterwards and you went, I made some notes. If you want to grab a coffee, I'm free to discuss. And, and you, you totally Mr. You, Mr. Miyagi me to my karate kid. And, and, it was, and I went down every note and I integrated it into the show and it just, up the level. And the one that particularly um, stands out is I had a bit called pasta, anti-pasta, which was just photos of each. And then you said, make the third to last photo a picture of Satan. (laughs) 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 Killed every night. Audiences are proud when they do some of the math. They put the word anti and they knew to put jump with the word anti and you didn't need any more. Audiences love credit. This is a note not for you, but for the listeners out there. They love yeah. when they did. They're the detective and they help solve the mystery with you, you know? So oh, it's fun to give them one. Or, you know, again, it's just create the formula and then break the formula. And they love when it's just, oh, we think we're, we've hooked into the formula. And then you throw them for, you know, the turn, <laughs> which is a photo of Satan. Jokes are supposed <laughs> to be surprises to work, man. See, there's a little bit where they got the one word. They're proud of the one word, the two words they got. They love that part. But if they get the whole punchline ahead of you, it's not the same story. Then they know, they know three or four of them and they'll start, hmm, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. No, that was good. That was clever. Got to bring the turn. Got to turn it. Twist it. So, Rick, where can, where can people check out your special? Uh, Amazon Prime. You can see it. And it's uh, for rent on YouTube. And it's going to be coming up on all the streaming services soon. It's going to go layer by layer. But those are the two right now. And you can always find it on ComedyDynamics.com. Very cool. So, Rick, thanks so much for chatting. I, I, I love the stories. And just, you know, I, I love the special and just your, your general philosophy on comedy. Oh, yeah. Thank you. And guys, also uh, check out the green room that uh, Paul Provenza did where comics are talking. Listen to how comics talk shop and you get a lot of insight into the world. And um, that's another wonderful thing to check out. And that's also something that Paul Provenza worked on was the set list. So those are our world connected uh, events. And thank you for having me on. It's good to talk again, man. Are you gigging anywhere? Where's your summer taking you? I'm going to Edinburgh. So I'm going back because they're doing a mini festival. So I'll be there doing 12 shows. Oh, yeah. you lucky bastard. Oh, I'd love to get out there with you. Oh, my. Thanks so much again. Well, good talking to you. Well, yeah, good talking to you too, Rick. Thanks again. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. The good thing about doing comedy in Russia, you have captured audience. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. Comedy History 101.